Well, this evening we turn our attention for the sermon text to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 through 17. To add context, I'm going to read beginning in verse 11. So we'll read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, and the sermon text will start through with verse 13. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. All of us who are united in Christ want to honor God and to bring new people into his kingdom. And this is something that Peter speaks of in verse 12, where he's given this general command to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, in the verses that follow and on into chapter 3, God, speaking through Peter's letter, gives more detailed instructions on how to fulfill this command in various relational situations. And so in tonight's passage, we read how to conduct ourselves honorably with respect to human authority, and particularly with respect to government authority. Now, we all have a sinful desire to rebel against authority. And this is especially true when we're backed into a corner, as Peter's original audience was. And they faced persecution and ostracism on account of their faith. Now, at the time that Peter wrote this letter, it is unlikely that the Roman government was officially taking part in these persecutions. Yet, at the same time, the Roman government took no particular pains to defend Christians. And the government itself, of course, encouraged many practices that were antithetical to Christian faith and practice. But regardless, Peter teaches these people, and God teaches you through Peter, to respect society's authorities. And so we'll look at three aspects of God's command to obey authorities. First, that the people of God should submit to the government for the Lord's sake. Second, that we should submit as part of that strategy to silence their foolish critics. And third, that we should submit as free people in Christ. And so first, we submit to the government for the Lord's sake. And here in this section, we can consider several elements of our submission to the government. First, we'll consider what it means to be subject to the government. Second, what it means to submit for the Lord's sake. 
And third, what God himself commissions the government to do. So first, what it means to be subject to the government. Now, the ESV here says that we are to be subject to every human institution. Well, Peter here first refers to human authority structures in general. But then he gives reference to the emperor and governors, giving particular attention to human government authorities. Now, the Greek word behind the command to be subject is the same Greek word that is usually translated submit. It has the same meaning here as it does elsewhere. Now, this word appears in contexts such as James chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourselves to God. It appears in Luke 2.51, saying that Jesus was submissive to his parents. For God commands you to obey and honor human authorities in every arena, and particularly to government authorities, from the supreme authority down to the local authorities. And furthermore, obedience to God and to parents is meant to be sincere and cheerful and characterized by love. And the fact that God uses the same word to refer to submission to other authorities, such as the government, indicates that he's commanding the same sort of sincere, cheerful, and loving obedience to human authorities. Now, this can be a hard pill to swallow. At many times, and in many places, the authorities have persecuted the church and even sought to destroy her. And again, at the time of this letter, the authorities turned a blind eye to the sufferings of believers. And not too long after Peter wrote this letter, uh, the Roman Empire would explode in a murderous persecution against Christians that would wax and wane for some three centuries. And yet, even when believers are relatively unmolested by the government, it can be easy to be sort of uh, sardonic about the government as the paperwork, political drama, paying your taxes can all become quite a hassle. And that's why it's so critical to remember that you are not called to submit to the government for the government's sake. God calls you to submit to the government for the Lord's sake. And so, you don't have to approve of the government in power. You don't have to personally like the people in office. But you do have to submit for the Lord's sake. For as it will be further explained, submission to the authorities is an act of obedience to God, a testimony to the gospel of Christ, and a show of your love for him. And so regardless of your thoughts on the authorities currently in power, you can obey sincerely, cheerfully, with love, because you're doing it for the sake of Christ. And you can also obey because the rulers have their commission from God. Now, Peter here refers to the governors sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And in this way, the emperor reflects God's 
purpose and intention for human government, which is to restrain evil and to encourage good. Now, this is true even considering how far short government falls of God's holy standard. God knew that government was, was falling short when he, when he had Peter write these words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Human government is imperfect, even at its best. And yet, it still does at least minimally well at restraining wickedness by punishing those who break the law. And on top of this, authorities do also serve to praise those who do good. Now, it's true that governments typically devote more resources to punishing the evil than to praising those who do good. But nevertheless, the authorities do take some notice when good works stand out. And the commentator Karen Jobes has written that it appears here that Peter is encouraging believers to take opportunities to do the kinds of good deeds that attract the notice and praise of the authorities, as well as of society in general. Peter, of course, began this section with this idea in verse 12, referring to our good deeds as giving others cause to glorify God. Now, while we shouldn't be glory seekers, we shouldn't be ostentatious parading around our obedience. Nevertheless, God in his providence will provide opportunities for good works to be done in public. So when he provides those opportunities, you should be prepared to take them for his glory. Now, so far I've spoken about governments who govern not perfectly, but more or less the way they ought to do. Yet we know so well that government authorities do not always govern the way that they ought to do. Some enrich themselves at the expense of their people. Some enact policies that violate God's law or stifle the flourishing of their people. Some directly oppose the church and seek to destroy it. Yet even when living under such a bad authority, the command remains to obey them. There are no qualifiers here in this sense. We submit because it is God's will, not because it is the authority's will. Paul writes in Romans 13 that there is no authority except from God. And whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. God considers unjust disobedience to civil authority as disobedience to him. Yet there are limits to this obedience, but they rest not in the character or quality of the authority figure in question. They rest in God and who he is. And tonight's passage hints at two of these limits. For Peter first refers to the emperor as human. Yet at the time this letter was written, the emperor expected to be venerated as though he were a god. No human authority, no human at all, ought to be worshipped. And second, Peter also refers to obedience to the authorities as God's will. Yet how could God possibly will that we honor the authorities if the authorities require us to live against God's will? And so in such cases, we must obey God rather than the authorities. Consider the examples we have in Scripture. 
Daniel, maybe because I preached through Daniel for a couple of years, but Daniel is, I think, the most notable. Joseph also stands out, Esther too. But we see in Daniel the balance between obedience to human rulers and obedience to God above all. For at the beginning of his education in Nebuchadnezzar's court, he refused to eat the food from the king's table because he was expressing that God, not the king, God supplies his needs. And yet, he served to the best of his ability in the courts of pagan rulers. Belshazzar was the most wicked king that he served, and yet, when Belshazzar summoned him to read the writing on the wall, Daniel came as he was ordered. But he told the king God's message, not a message that he thought the king would like to hear. And so God calls you to obey the authorities, except where they require you to sin. Well, of course, Scripture sums this up best. In Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21, My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. So after looking, what a, looking at what it looks like to submit to the authorities for God's sake, we look at a crucial reason why we do this. We submit to the authorities to silence the ignorance of our foolish critics. For Peter's audience was accused of all kinds of evil by society around them, and Peter refers to this several times throughout this letter. We know that the early Christians were accused of cannibalism, of conducting orgies, that they were antisocial, that tradesmen who converted to Christianity refused to participate in the worship of the trade guilds and thereby uh, uh, went against, or refused, excuse me, refused the blessing of the gods on these trades. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, we read that Paul was opposed by the silversmiths because his gospel cut into their profits, because they produced silver shrines to Otamus, the supposed goddess of wisdom. Excuse me, the goddess of, of hunting. Pardon me. Uh, in this situation, by the way, the authorities rightly intervened on behalf of Paul. Well, believers today also are also opposed and accused of all kinds of evils. Intolerant, power-hungry, spiteful, opponents of freedom and progress. But do you know what would be one way to lend these criticisms credence? If believers routinely got in trouble with the authorities? What a shadow it casts over the proclamation of the gospel when Christians oppose the authorities over their lawful orders. Not speaking of their unlawful orders, but of their lawful orders. We don't pick fights with the government just because. And as a practical matter, the quiet believer lives of the believers are meant to show the bad faith of our critics. It's one thing to live according to a strange custom. It's another thing to live according to a strange custom and commit crimes on top of it. The ancient believers didn't worship the emperor. 
They didn't participate in other elements of pagan worship. But Peter is saying that in other matters, it's important to do your best to be a regular law-abiding guy or gal. Now again, this doesn't mean you obey the government at the cost of obeying God. It also doesn't mean that you shouldn't use your, the rights you have to speak up against evil when the government is perpetrating or encouraging evil. But it does mean you obey the government as much as possible so as not to give fodder to the church's opponents when they speak against us as evil. Remember Christ's own innocence before the Roman authorities. When the centurion and those who were with him saw how he died, they confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. Pilate himself recognized that Jesus was innocent and should be set free, and he wickedly and in a cowardly way sent him to the cross anyway for his own political ends. But he recognized Christ's innocence. And Paul lived in an echo of Christ, for when he appealed to Rome against his imprisonment, Festus and Agrippa were at their wit's end because they acknowledged that he had committed no crime, and they had no idea what to write to Caesar as to why he should be tried before Caesar. Well, some of the church's critics will persist in their sinful ignorance, and they will receive their just judgment for it. But never forget, if the Bible says it, you can bank on it. God here says that the ignorance of the foolish people will be silenced by godly obedience to earthly authorities. And Scripture itself supplies plenty of real-world examples testifying to this fact. Now, we have to acknowledge here that most of us have a very different relationship to the government than Peter's recipients did. For our system of government in the United States confers much greater rights on a much wider variety of people than ancient Rome did. And it's no sin at all to use these rights in a lawful way. You're free to speak your mind. You're free to engage in lawful protest. O obedience to the, the government doesn't mean you always vote for the incumbent rather than somebody you think more worthy. You have the right to your day in court if you're accused of a crime or civil liability, and so on. Paul had rights as a Roman citizen, and he was a citizen by birth, the most prestigious form of citizenship that there was. There were actually several different classes of citizenship with different rights in ancient Rome. And often you were more of a citizen of a city rather than the Roman Empire at large. But Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. In Acts 17, he invoked his citizenship in Philippi to demand an official recognition that he had been publicly beaten and imprisoned falsely. He invoked his citizenship to be permitted to speak to people who falsely accused him in Jerusalem in Acts 21. And in Acts 25, we read that when he was imprisoned in Caesarea, he invoked his right to appeal his case to the emperor and so to ensure his passage to Rome. But notice that Paul didn't invoke these rights for his own sake. He didn't invoke his rights for his own comfort or convenience. 
He invoked his rights in order to secure greater freedom to proclaim the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Likewise, Jesus himself had certain rights with the Father that he did not exercise because they violated his commission from the Father. As the mob is coming to take him to the civil authorities to be tried and crucified, Jesus says to his apostles, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? And yet doing so would have prevented him from going to the cross. And so you too, when exercising your rights, you need to consider what effect it may have on the testimony of the gospel. Everybody in our society today demands their rights in order to fulfill their own desire for self-expression, autonomy, and, and their right to live however they see fit. But your rights are to be put under the submission to Christ. And so you exercise your rights within a a framework of submission to God and also of submission to the human authorities as much as possible. And so when you speak in disagreement, speak with respect and with acknowledgement of their authority over you. Peaceably abide by their judgments as long as they are not sinful. John Calvin writes so well in this way, and there are two things that I'm going to cite from the Institutes. First, read his letter to the King of France as to why he is sending him a copy of this uh, book of Reformed theology that he's written. It is full of respect for the King, while also seeking to prove that Reformed Christians are the best citizens of all. But second, towards the end of at least the edition I read, I don't know where it is in the later editions, he he writes of the civil government and our relationship to the civil government. And you should should read it. It's it's great reading, but this quote I'm going to to paraphrase stood out to me. And this refers to the right use of litigation by Christians. He writes, The plaintiff who is unfairly afflicted places himself in the magistrate's hands, explains his grievance, and lays before him his just and fair request, having no wish to hurt or be avenged, and without hate, bitterness, or a passion for disputes, being ready instead to surrender what is his and to suffer anything rather than harbor wrath and hatred against his adversary. The defendant answers the writ, and defends his case with the best arguments he can muster, without resentment, but with the simple wish to keep what is rightfully his. So we've seen that we submit to the government for the Lord's sake, and that we submit to silence the foolish critics of our faith. And finally, we see that we submit as people who are free in Christ. Now, the ESV has it here in verse 16, live as people who are free, but that word live doesn't appear in the Greek text at all. And so the correct verb to supply here actually comes from verse 13, submit. God instructs you to submit as people who are free in Christ. And at first, this seems like a contradiction in terms. 
Freedom and submission don't go together at all, do they? And so we need to consider what it means when the Bible refers to freedom. Now, freedom has come to mean the absence of restraint against you doing whatever you feel like. But in Scripture, it is sin and Satan that subject us to bondage. And so freedom is freedom from sin and Satan. We read in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 that Satan holds the power of death over those who do not belong to Christ and makes them his slaves. Romans 6, likewise, presents sin as one to whom we once willingly presented ourselves as slaves. Now, there are other elements to our bondage apart from Christ, and you can read all about them in chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. But these will suffice for this sermon because Peter is specifically referring to the contrast between good conduct and evil conduct. And so, among other things, freedom in the Bible, is no longer being ruled by your wicked desires or temptations so that you are able to do what is right. And Christ is the one who purchased this freedom for you on the cross. For in Romans 6, 8, we read that we have died with Christ so that the body of sin is brought to nothing, so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. And so our death with Christ rather leads to life with him so that we are instruments for righteousness. In Hebrews chapter 2, we, we read further that through death, Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so you can see that Christ sets us free to do what is good And therefore, this freedom can never be used, as Peter writes, as a cover-up for evil. Well, the image Peter is employing here is doing something evil, but covering it up with freedom to pretend it's good. It'd be like taking your Ford Pinto and covering it with a car cover that says Lamborghini on it. No matter how much you may think it's a Lamborghini, you're not setting any track records on Friday night. Well, likewise, Christian freedom is never something that can be used to justify doing what is evil in God's sight. How would you even try? People do it. Perhaps you would claim to be obeying your conscience and therefore God when disobeying the state, even though the state hasn't required something sinful. Others say that Christ has set us free from any moral requirements at all that God has laid for us in his law, including the requirement to obey authority. But none of these are Christian freedom at all. My, my, my notes here say none of these are the right way to use Christian freedom. Actually, none of these are Christian freedom at all, period. And in fact, any such work of evil is just a return to slavery. And so instead of being set free to do evil, we are set free to serve God. As Gordon Selwyn wrote, Christian freedom rests not on escape from service, but on a change of master. And God graciously provides us his law so that we can know how to serve him. In James chapter 1, verse 25, we read that the law is a law of liberty. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. If you trust in Christ by faith, he graciously sets you free from servitude to Satan 
so that you can serve God instead. In Christ, you meet the new boss, but he's not the same as the old boss. And so submission to the king may appear to be bondage, but it isn't because you've been set free in Christ. And this is an aspect, an important aspect of life lived in accordance with who you were made to be, where you find true freedom. A train finds it far more difficult to run off track than on track. A mechanical watch expends a great deal more energy to tell incorrect time than it does to tell correct time. These devices are designed so that executing their purpose requires less energy than doing otherwise. That's just how physics works. And so it is with you. When you live according to the purpose God set out for you, you will find that although you may be a servant of God, service to him is easy when compared to slavery to Satan, which is only able to crush you and lead you to your death. And that's because of another kind of freedom we have in Christ. As we read in Galatians 5, Christ by his sacrifice sets you free from obedience to the law as the means of your salvation. You can never earn your place with God by doing the law for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can only belong to God of Christ's righteousness is credited to your account by faith. But with this freedom, you can serve God sincerely, doing your best day by day in the strength that he provides by the Holy Spirit and trusting that Christ's blood covers your sins when you fall short and that you will always be his. And so we submit to the government for the Lord's sake to silence the foolish critics as a free person in Christ, free to serve God rather than sin. And so Peter ends this paragraph with four practical commands as to how we can serve God faithfully in doing so. First, you honor everyone. Treat all people as valuable and worthy of honor. From an invitation to the White House to the person who rings up your coffee at Starbucks, you must treat every person as though they matter. They're all image bearers of God. So treat everybody with kindness and patience, for nobody is beneath you. Second, love the brotherhood. We honor everyone, but have a special duty to show self-sacrificing love within the church. Resist factions within the church. As Pastor Charles preached two weeks ago, speak, uh, speak plainly with one another. Do not split up under trial, but instead stick together. Submit to one another. Seek to meet one another's needs. Third, fear God. Not with the kind of fear where you worry he will condemn you after all. The kind of fear that believes his threats, yet understands that they are intended to warn his children away from harm. God delights to save, and so he issues these warnings to give you all the more cause to turn to him and trust him to save you. And fourth, honor the emperor. Do not fear him, for he is not God. The emperor may be able to take your physical life, but he cannot throw you into hell. There is no cause to fear him, but there is every cause for God's sake to hold him to be worthy and valuable, to respect and obey him, and to speak of him honorably, even when you disagree with him. 
And so in all these ways, you will fulfill God's command to be subject to human authorities, to obey the emperor, yet do it for the Lord's sake. Faithfulness to these commands show up the ignorance of foolish people who speak evil of the church. And a living according to these commands is living in the freedom Christ won for you from slavery to sin and Satan and to set you free to serve God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the provision of government to restrain evil and to uphold what is good. Father, we pray for everybody who suffers under government that rules unjustly. And once again, we pray that our own government would would in all things behave honorably and rule justly. But Father, regardless, we pray that you would give us the strength and the will to serve sincerely and cheerfully and with love and charity in our hearts for those who rule over us. But Father, we pray that you will also give us the courage and the strength to disobey when appropriate, when called to by your own law. Father, we pray that we would never fear in such situations, that we would accept, uh, that we would accept the consequences, that we would accept the authority, but not fear, for we fear you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.